with the 1971 LP Shakara. Fela and Africa 70 enjoyed one of their biggest early hits, a two-track album comprising Sakara, Aloje, and Lady. It marks the transition of Afrobeat from its late 1960s fetal stage to something approaching its full-grown form. Good morning, everybody. Let's see what's going on in the world. Good morning, Amy. What's going on in the world? From New York, this is Democracy Now! Following the despicable attack on January the 6th, there must, there must be truth and accountability if we are going to move forward, heal, and bring our country together once again. The historic second Yeah, impe- I'll talk and no action, man. They should be getting... The, everybody should be calling um, Congress and and demanding that their reps support H.R. 25, Cory Bush, new representative Cory Bush, which would remove all these fucking traitors. There's like 147 or 8 of them who um, signed signed up to uh, try to overturn the election based on absolutely zero evidence. That's sedition. Impeachment trial of Donald Trump begins today for inciting the deadly January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. We'll get the latest. Then where's the vaccine for ableism? We'll speak to two disability rights activists about growing calls to prioritize giving COVID vaccines to people with physical and mental disabilities. Then the United States has just deported 72 people to Haiti, including a two-month-old baby. And if I were president president there would be a moratorium we can do that for an executive order a moratorium on um, any any detentions um any uh new detentions and any new uh deportations right now 21 other babies and children despite president biden's vow to halt deportations for 100 days we are calling yeah, on President Biden to stop the deportation of Haitians in the middle of the uprising in Haiti. The inhuman, cruel, and draconian practice under President Trump cannot continue. Yeah, All that right. and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The historic second impeachment trial of Donald J. Trump begins today in the Senate. The proceedings will decide whether to hold Trump accountable for inciting the deadly insurrection on the U.S. Capitol January 6th, which was aimed at stopping lawmakers from counting the Electoral College votes. Tuesday's debate will focus on the constitutionality of impeaching a former president, the Trump defense teams relying heavily on a law review article by Michigan State University professor Brian Kalt, whose work was cited 15 times in the legal brief filed by Trump's lawyers Monday. But Kalt told NPR his work is being misrepresented. The worst part is the three places where they said, I said something when in fact I said the opposite. 
lawyers for the defense also plan to argue Trump was exercising his First Amendment rights when he made comments like these to the thousands of people who rallied outside the White House on the day of the failed insurrection. Down the street. We fight like hell, and if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. House impeachment managers and Trump's defense lawyers will each be given 16 hours over two days to make their arguments. The trial could end early next week if witnesses aren't called. After headlines, we'll get the latest on Trump's second impeachment Good trial. Luck. You're gonna, they're going to have find a hard time trying to get any lawyers to take on that or uh, witnesses because... Um, because they're fucking guilty as hell. Georgia's Republican Secretary of State has opened an inquiry into Donald Trump's attempts to overturn Joe Biden's election victory in Georgia. Legal scholars say Trump violated at least three federal and state election laws with comments like these made during an hour-long conference call with Secretary Brad Raffensperger on January 2nd. I just want to find... Uh, 11,780 votes, votes, which is one more than we have. Following an investigation, Georgia's Republican-controlled State Board of Elections... It doesn't even make sense, which is one more than we have. What the fuck does that mean? ...will determine whether to refer the case to Georgia's Attorney General for prosecution. More than 1,500 people died of COVID-19 across the United States Monday, though the number of daily confirmed infections fell below 100,000 for the first time since November. Top infectious disease expert Dr. Anthony Fauci says daily U.S. vaccinations, now averaging nearly 1.5 million shots per day, should continue to increase as spring approaches and more doses become available. Get as many people. By the way, uh, 100 million doses, vaccine doses, that's how many Mr. Fuckface Nazi asked to turn down in late July. And he's not being held to account for that. That's, that's like taking away the, uh, it's taking away, um, people's, how many hundreds of thousands of people's lives. People vaccinated as quickly as we possibly can. That's the best defense against the evolution of variants. Fauci rejected a call by one of President Biden's coronavirus advisors to delay the second dose of two-dose vaccinations in order to get more people partially vaccinated sooner. Meanwhile, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says the U.S. is considering a plan that would require all U.S. domestic airline passengers show a negative coronavirus test result before boarding flights. Buttigieg himself went into quarantine Monday after he reported close contact with a security guard who tested positive for coronavirus. Texas Republican Congress member Ron Wright has died of complications from COVID-19 two weeks after he and his wife were both hospitalized with the disease in Dallas. Just four days ago, Congress member Wright blasted teachers, unions, and Democrats for delaying the return of students to in-person yeah, classes, so tweeting, down. quote, the CDC says schools can safely reopen if proper precautions are taken. What are we waiting for, unquote? Congress member Wright is the second person elected to the 117th Congress to die of COVID-19 after 41-year-old Louisiana Republican Luke Letlow succumbed to the disease in December before he could take office for what would have been his freshman term. 
Here in New York, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said Monday the Federal Emergency Management Administration will help pay for COVID-related funeral and burial costs for low-income families. Ocasio-Cortez says families can apply for up to $7,000 in FEMA funds. When you suddenly lose a loved one, you're talking about an expense of four, five, seven, ten thousand dollars. And then during COVID, with overrun uh, funeral facilities, etc., families also are being are having to deal with having to pay for the storage of the bodies of their own loved ones. This is wrong. Meanwhile, a Columbia journalism investigation has revealed residents of a state-run. She's one of the few elected representatives of ours that has any humanity. Veterans nursing home were given experimental COVID-19 treatments without the knowledge of their families. Residents of the St. Albans State Veterans Home in Queens were administered a cocktail of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin despite safety warnings and doubts about the drug's efficacy. The Senate has confirmed President Biden's pick to head the Department of Veterans Affairs. Dennis McDonough is just the second non-veteran to lead the VA. He previously served as President Barack Obama's chief of staff and his deputy national security advisor. In immigration news, the Biden administration's reviewing the deportations of veterans and their families that took place under Trump. The White House said in a statement, quote, the administration's immigration enforcement will focus on those who are national security and public safety threats, not military families, service members or veterans, unquote. Immigrant justice advocates have long warned these guidelines continue to criminalize undocumented people and asylum seekers and continue to give ICE wide prosecutorial discretion on who gets deported. This comes as activists are denouncing the ongoing mass deportations of Haitian asylum seekers. The Biden administration had temporarily suspended removal flights to Haiti Friday. On Monday, The Guardian reports over 70 Haitian asylum seekers were deported, including more than 20 babies and children. Advocate and executive director of Haitian Bridge Alliance, Gerline Joseph, so tweeted, quote, we didn't vote and made all the sacrifices to elect Joe Biden and Kamala Harris so they can continue Trump's draconian, cruel, evil, and inhumane practices. Gerline Joseph will join us for more on the fight against these deportations later in the broadcast. In Colombia, President Ivan Duque announced Monday Venezuelan asylum seekers will be given protected status for up to 10 years. The policy is likely to benefit some 1 million undocumented Venezuelans, granting them permission to work and access to social services. In New York, Reuters reports a recent federal court filing has confirmed right-wing Honduran President Juan Orlando Hernandez is being investigated by U.S. authorities for his possible involvement in drug trafficking. Uh Federal prosecutors accuse Hernandez of using law enforcement and the military to protect drug traffickers. Hernandez reportedly accepted millions of dollars in exchange, promising traffickers they wouldn't be prosecuted or extradited to the U.S. Uh He has remained a key U.S. ally despite long-standing accusations of corruption, human rights abuses, and involvement with drug cartels. 
In Mexico, authorities have identified the remains of nine other victims, all Guatemalan, who were among 19 people killed in a massacre in the northern state of Tamaulipas. Of the 16 victims identified so far, two were Mexican and 14 Guatemalan. The 19 bodies were found shot and charred in a town near the U.S.-Mexico border in January. A dozen Mexican state police were arrested last week for their possible involvement in the massacre. And in Chicago, the former president of the Chicago Teachers Union, Karen Lewis, has died. She was 67 years old. Karen Lewis had been battling brain cancer since 2014. She stepped down from her position at CTU due to her health four years later. This is Karen Lewis in a 2010 interview with Democracy Now! I don't think anybody will argue with that, that the system is broken. It is, it is, it has not basically changed since the 1900s. Um, 1800s for that matter, and, and as a result, it has never been able to absorb real innovation. And the problem is it's just a lot easier to, to, to test, test, test children. Our, our curriculum has narrowed in Chicago. Um, if you look at the average day for an elementary school kid, it's reading, 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 math, math, math. Reading, 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 math. I mean, kids are bored to tears. They're hating school at an early age. There's no joy. There's no passion. And, and the results show that. Karen Lewis's death comes as some 25,000 members of the Chicago Teachers Union vote today on whether to approve a plan to return to in-person learning during the pandemic. Union members have been on the cusp of striking over coronavirus safety concerns. To see our interviews with Karen Lewis, you can go to democracynow.org. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the quarantine report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by my co-host Juan Gonzalez in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, history is being made today. The second impeachment trial of a U.S. president, of former President Donald Trump, begins today in the Senate. Since the founding of the United States, the Senate has conducted just three other presidential impeachment trials. Andrew Johnson in 1868, Bill Clinton in 1999, and Donald Trump last year in 2020. Trump is the first president to face an impeachment trial after leaving office. The House impeached Trump a week before his term ended for inciting the deadly insurrection in the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, which was aimed at stopping lawmakers from certifying the Electoral College votes. Trump's defense team claims it's unconstitutional to try a former president, but the argument's been rejected by many constitutional law experts, including the prominent conservative lawyer Charles Cooper. In a piece in the Wall Street Journal, Cooper wrote, it defies logic to suggest that the Senate is prohibited from trying and convicting former office holders, unquote. Trump's defense team also claims the former president did not, quote, direct anyone to commit unlawful actions. Sure he did. Well, on Monday, Senate so Majority Leader Chuck seat. Schumer defended the impeachment process. A president cannot simply resign to avoid accountability for an impeachable offense, nor can they escape judgment by waiting until their final few weeks in office to betray our country. 
the impeachment powers assigned to the Congress by the Constitution cannot be defeated by a president who decides to run away or trashes our democracy on the way out the door. Ultimately, senators will decide on the one true question at stake in this trial. Is Donald Trump guilty of inciting a violent mob against the United States? A mob whose purpose was to interfere with the constitutional process of counting electoral votes Shut up and, vote. and ensuring a peaceful transfer of power. The Senate impeachment trial will begin today at 1 p.m. Eastern. We'll be live streaming the trial gavel to gavel at democracynow.org for the next week or as long as it takes. Today's session will focus on the constitutionality and the Senate trying a former president. Then beginning Wednesday, House impeachment managers and Trump's defense lawyers will each be given 16 hours over two days to make their arguments. The trial could end early next week. It remains unclear if witnesses will be called. We're joined now by Alan Hirsch, chair of the Justice and Law Studies program at Williams College in Massachusetts. He's also author of several books, including a short history of presidential election crises and how to prevent the next one, and impeaching the president, past, present, and future. Professor Hirsch, it's great to have you with us. What stands out about this historic impeachment trial that begins today? Well, Amy, as you said, today's going to be devoted to the question of whether the Senate even has the authority to conduct the trial. This Republicans claiming, Trump's uh, attorneys claiming that the Senate lacks jurisdiction. So if 51 senators say that the Senate has jurisdiction, which is almost sure to happen, the trial will continue. It will reach the merits starting tomorrow. However, unless uh, a, major a two thirds majority, 67, find that uh, they have jurisdiction, there is no chance of Trump being uh, convicted. So we have a situation where if 35 Republican senators or more claim that the Senate lacks jurisdiction, the trial will go on, but it will be Alice in Wonderland, verdict first, trial later. So it's really crucial what happens in the next day. And well, Professor Hirsch, what about this issue of, of whether the Senate uh, can uh, legally try a president after leaving office? What's your, what's your reading of, a, uh, of the law? I am with the overwhelming majority of scholars who believe that, of course, the Senate can conduct this trial, uh, that otherwise you would be giving the president a get-out-of-impeachment-free card at the end of his administration. He could do whatever he wanted, including the kinds of things President Trump did, and then simply resign the office or run out the clock. The Senate would have no authority to do anything, and he could run for office again. That just seems completely contrary to public policy and common sense. And the other thing I would emphasize People on the other side say, how can you impeach a president who isn't even in office? The truth is, he was impeached when he was in office. So now the only question is whether you can conduct the trial of a president who has been impeached while he was in office. I think you might be able to make a colorable argument that when the president is out of office, he's not subject to impeachment. I don't think it's a strong argument, but one can imagine it. But the argument that a president who has already been impeached can leave through resignation or his term ending and then not be subject to these legal processes. Um, I think everybody's missing the point. 
about how important it is to fucking convict and why we should all be calling those fucking Rathugla cunts and uh, demanding that they, uh, <clears throat> you know, pressure them. We need to be pressuring the Rathugla cunts right now um, to uh, do the right thing and make, sh- make it clear that they're under very close scrutiny. And we also need to get the other, the 10 Rathuglicunts who uh, voted in the House of Representatives to impeach him again. We need to get them to talk to their Rathuglicunt colleagues because they'll probably only listen to their, them. And um, what else we need uh, to do? We, we need to press this and... Uh, Make sure that he's convicted so that we don't have to pay for his, uh, you know, as a president, he's going to be suckling off the teat of the state for the rest of his life. He and his fucking asshole family. So we need to convict him so that he cannot run for office again and do this again, little Hitler. And, um... So that he can't, uh, he can't get uh, the what is it, four hundred thousand dollars a year, and uh, free health care. You know, cut him off all that. He doesn't need that anyway. He's a billionaire, so, so he says. <laughs> and then be again. Really, would make makes very little sense to me. And, and what's your sense of the kind of evidence that the house managers will present during the? Uh, uh, during the trial? Will there be actual witnesses from what you can tell? Right. So a couple of things. Uh, Amy mentioned that there have been three impeachment trials. The only one in which there were live witnesses were the Andrew Johnson child. Now, for it to be a real fact-finding body, you really do need witnesses. But having said that, if you just read the House manager's brief, and I recommend that your listeners and viewers do, because it really is a terrific, thorough piece of work, you will see that the Trump team is going to have an extraordinarily difficult time defending, particularly with respect to the issue of how he conducted himself once the Capitol had been stormed. His lawyers will be able to make a semi-reasonable argument that nothing he said explicitly... In case you weren't watching, um, <clears throat> Mr. Fuckface Nazi ass dump uh, riled up his supporters that, you know, he, he called this weeks in advance. He said it was going to be real wild. January 6th at the Capitol, 11 a.m. on the ellipse, right in front of the White House, right down the street from the Capitol. And um, riled him up. He said, you know, he... He was going down there with him, which he didn't. He went back to the safety of the White House and uh, watched. He was glued to the TV. He uh, Nobody, he would, uh, they had a viewing party. They had a viewing party with Don Jr. And uh, who's that cracking bitch? Don Jr.'s girlfriend, the cracking one. Uh, they were having a viewing party and it's, uh, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's all a matter of public record, of course. Uh, so they were having a viewing party, and they were saying, and she was, <coughs> they were saying like, <coughs> um, you know, calling them patriots, 
And uh, while they were bashing over the head to death, Brian Sicknick, a Capitol Police officer, um, Muriel Bowser, the D.C. mayor, had been begging them to send in the National Guards. But it's not a state yet, so she had no power, and plus she's black. She actually asked, Muriel Bowser, the D.C. mayor, had asked for, uh, the day before, put in a request for, for uh, federal troops. By the way, there was one-sixth of the Capitol Police president present that day that was that would ordinarily be should be there a sit one six there was a, uh usually there's like 2500 there were only like i think it was like 600 and um so he he uh absolutely refused to send in the national guard and uh, he lied you know the the lawyer should pick up pick up on this stuff too because he lied and said that he sent in the National Guard. He did nothing of the fucking kind. He ignored all calls for the National Guards because he wanted them to succeed. He wanted them to succeed. And they, uh, almost, uh, they almost kidnapped Mike Pence. The uh, s um, s Secret Service, whatever. Um, told Mike Pence, they're coming... Uh, and uh, on the, but Pence refused to leave, be evacuated, because you know I think he was in his office, and um, and uh, he was the one who called the National Guard on his way out, and that was like it was dark, it was the uh, hours later, hours later. And uh, fuckface Nazi ass dump was watching all this all this on TV, you know. And after he egged them egged them on, incited a rebellion, incited riots, murderous riots. Probably, how much want to? I would bet you 120 million dollars that he owes the Chinese Communist Bank that uh, he offered them pardons in advance. He incited the insurrection that he didn't intend to incite the insurrection. These arguments are, again, at least colorable. But how did they defend colorable? him for sitting back after the Capitol had been stormed when he is being urged by multiple people to take action and allegedly he's watching television and seemingly pleased it. with what is going oh, on? Yeah. It really seems Gleeful. to me that it, it's going to be a case of trying to defend the indefensible. But having said that, Neither I, your listeners, nor the Senate should take as gospel what is in the House manager's brief. This is why you have a trial. And in order to establish what Trump was doing, that's not going to be on tape. We will see his speech on January 6th. We will see people storming the Capitol. We will even see some of them saying they are following Trump's wishes. Yeah, he was, uh, they um, backed off after he tweeted... He didn't want to do that. He didn't want them to to uh, to tweet, but he was like, uh, you know, all his uh, it's whatever. Probably they threatened to all quit unless he fucking did something about it, and he reluctantly, like, tweeted, you know, 
um, and, and his followers quoted him, telling him that, that he said to, to go home. But to we leave. won't see Trump doing nothing after the Capitol has been stormed. We won't see conversations in which he says, well, let's let it go for a while. I'm kind of pleased with this. Witnesses could establish that that's what happened. And that's where I believe witnesses would be most potent. Although the last I've heard, uh, Senator Schuber doesn't want to call witnesses. I hope he reconsiders Why that not? view. I mean, uh, Professor Hirsch, this is the key point. I'm sure many people who deeply care about civil liberties and free speech are concerned that if someone says something and then someone else goes and uh, commits a violent act and says it was because of what this guy said, um, that that is, um, uh, they're concerned about making those links. But the point that he said in his speech, I'm going to be marching with you, going with you. Of course, he then uh, scurried back to the White House and the safety of the Oval Office. And he watched what happened. Are we going to learn about these conversations, Republican after Republican, calling him, that calls he would not take, um, begging yeah. him to say something? What but he, he didn't just not say anything. He did issue a statement, despite the fact that his defense lawyers now are going to say he was horrified by the violence that was committed. In fact, he did make a statement at the time we saw the desecration of the Capitol. He called them patriots and said, I love you. Uh, I, I am in heated agreement. And as I said, I think that is the most vulnerable aspect of his behavior. Um, I would also add, you mentioned that there will be arguments that there's not a direct enough link between his words and the mob's actions. Even if that were true, and that's debatable, this is not a criminal trial. No one has to prove beyond reasonable doubt that he had the state of mind to incite the mob or anything like that. This is an impeachment. This is a judgment about whether this president is unfit for office based on having committed improper offenses against society itself as Alexander Hamilton put it in the Federalist Papers. And I personally think it is very, very difficult to defend the president's behavior as not rising to the level of an impeachable offense. And Professor Hirsch, what about the uh, impact of the, the, the trial uh, and uh, on the Trump base and on his continued hold over the Republican Party? Because clearly a lot of these Republicans who may be voting not to convict him have to, will possibly, possibly are dealing with the reality that they're going to have to uh, face his his uh, influence on the party in upcoming elections. Well, one, I think that's on the nose, even though the political aspects of it are beyond my bailiwick. But what I will say is the trial has a two-part function. One is to see if this person can be disqualified from office based on his manifest unfitness and stemming from his attack on democracy. But the other is the possible effect on the public. The public will watch this trial. And if it does uh, chip away at the support Trump has from its base, it may effectively disqualify him from future office, even if it doesn't formally do so. We're going to leave it there for now. But um, of course, we're continuing to cover this. And Democracy Now! will be running the impeachment trial of Donald Trump, uh, gavel to gavel, at democracynow.org, beginning at 1 today. Alan Hirsch, want to thank you for being with us, chair of the Justice and Law Studies Program at Williams College, author of several books, including A Short History of Presidential Election Crises and How to Prevent the Next One, and Impeaching the President, Past, 
present and future. This is Democracy Now! When we come back, where's the vaccine for ableism? We'll speak to two disability rights activists about growing calls to prioritize giving COVID vaccines to people with physical and mental disabilities. Stay with us. performing Femme du Monde, Women of the World, here in our Democracy Now! studios. They met at a school for the blind in Mali. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. As the U.S. death toll from COVID-19 tops 465,000, we look now at the devastating impact the pandemic has had on the disabled. Many states have failed to prioritize giving vaccines to people with serious physical or developmental disabilities, even though studies have shown disabled people are two to three times more likely to die from COVID. California's faced intense criticism for recently switching to a largely age-based vaccine rollout, leaving out many younger disabled residents with serious medical conditions. There's also confusion in many states over what medical conditions qualify for prioritized access to vaccines. On the international front, the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, recently appeared on Al Jazeera and spoke out about the pandemic's impact on the disabled. We know that people living with disabilities, usually they are, they had already unequal conditions um, and they are discriminated and that makes them more likely to uh, to be exposed to the virus and less likely to be treated. As you know, um, in, in many countries, uh, the biggest amount of people who have died of COVID-19 is people living with disabilities. We're joined now by two guests. Joining us from Oakland, California, is Rabbi Elliot Kukla, who offers spiritual care to those who are ill, dying, or bereaved at the Bay Area Jewish Healing Center in San Francisco. He's a disability rights activist working on a book about being chronically ill in a time of planetary crisis. His recent New York Times op-ed was headlined, Where's the Vaccine for Ableism? Rabbi Kukla is also the first openly transgender person to be ordained by the Reformed Jewish Seminary Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in Los Angeles. 
And in San Francisco, we are joined by Alice Wong, founder of the Disability Visibility Project, an online community dedicated to creating, sharing, and amplifying disability media and culture. Alice Wong is also the host of the podcast Disability Visibility and the editor of the new book, Disability Visibility, First Person Stories from the 21st Century, an anthology of essays by people who have disabilities. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Alice Wong, let's begin with you. I mean, you use an electric wheelchair, you are on a ventilator, but you are not prioritized in California for getting the vaccine? Yes, I am not. Jurisdiction, many people talk a little bit of what the structures like in California. They are truly vaccinated people in phase 1A. They would be physicians, healthcare workers, long-term care residents, people over 65, and essential workers of several sectors. Now, that step was phase 1C. And that included people under 65 with any disability or health condition and with additional essential workers. So I was supposed to be in phase 1C. And the governor on January 25th announced that he was moving to an age-based system after phases 1 and B are completed with vaccination. And this is when I lost my belief and got really, really angry. I created a, the hashtag CA because I really think people don't understand that young high-risk people exist. And that when we think about high-risk, we often think about older people, people who are in long-term care facilities, but there are a lot of people with disabilities and who are people who are chronically ill, higher weight people, immunocompromised people who are in all age groups. And people need to understand the disastrous impact of this change. If you use the hashtag so that we can mobilize, it also holds space for one another because you know, the bleep is bleeping real. And uh, Alice Wong, there are some states such as Oregon who have included people with uh, intellectual and developmental uh, disabilities of, of all ages in the vaccine rollout. Can you talk about what's, what's uh, the differences in some, some states and which states you think are doing a better job? Well, I think some states are doing a little bit better job, but the question is, uh, this, you know, New York recently announced that there's going to be, you know, a lot of vaccines for people with disabilities, but there's a lot of questions as to who they define as high risk. You know, a lot of states are relying on the CDC's list, and you know, the CDC's list of conditions for groups that are at high risk for COVID-19 is not comprehensive, nor was it even meant to be anything definitive. It leaves out a lot of people with disabilities 
and states are using this for their eligibility criteria. And other states are also increasing it, adding specific disabilities as well. So this leaves a lot of people out, especially people with rare or undiagnosed diseases. So, you know, for people who want to report, there's actually a really excellent article published a few days ago by Liz Bowen in Scientific American that talks about, you know, this whole idea of these lists because, you know, it, Disabled people are incredibly heterogeneous, and it's not everybody has a diagnosis. You know, not everybody has access to care or a primary care doctor. And a lot of these uh, states that are prioritizing disabled people, they have to actually provide proof and verification. And that kind of gatekeeping is another barrier. I'd like to bring uh, Rabbi Elliot Kukla into the conversation. Uh, Rabbi, could, you suggested that from the outset, disabled people have been marginalized in response to the pandemic. Could you explain what you see is happening and also especially what is happening to those who are disabled in long-term care facilities? Uh, yeah, thank you for asking about that. Um, a lot of my work is serving people in long-term care you know, in all sorts of different facilities. Um, really from the beginning of the pandemic, the messaging was, you know, don't worry, the only people who will die or be become seriously sick are elders and disabled people and people of higher weight. So in other words, we're really no big loss. You know, anyone who is less disposable will be fine, so you shouldn't worry, was really the kind of, pretty much across the board was the messaging at the beginning of the pandemic. And that um, understanding has really led the response to the pandemic, this feeling of being disposable. Um, even from the very beginning, before there were even medical shortages, there was a threat of medical rationing to elders and people with disabilities. Um, and the pandemic has really, the epicenter has been long-term care. More than a third of um, COVID deaths have happened in nursing homes, which has been, you know, something that, you know, located in nursing homes felt like an, an inevitability to me from the the way things were playing out from the beginning and really unbearable to watch play out. And a lot of that has to do with um, so many systemic injustices coming together in this one location from, you know, lack of government oversight to poor infection control to the fact that, that long-term care in its, its very structure um, is kind of a pandemic waiting to happen. It's, it's set up in such a way that um, because of um, a need, f uh, less and less public funding and more and more need to worry about profits, um, most long-term care facilities depend on uh, a not very well-paid staff, largely of people of color who are exposed to some of the 
the biggest health risks in society, as we've seen most of the people who staff nursing homes um, often don't have adequate sick leave, are often working multiple jobs to make ends meet, and are in a situation with high turnaround, are often working, often living at home with people who are also in high-risk jobs, and people who are essentially exposed to some of the highest health risks in society due to racism and poverty are in this role of caring up close to the most high-risk people, which is really a position that makes both the staff and the residents, you know, really by design, by the very structure of these institutions in society disposable, makes both parties disposable. And that's really um, systems that are, are very large, very, very deep ageism and ableism and racism um, that's deep within the structure of how we think about those things in society and sizeism. I'd like to turn to the new Democratic Congress member from New York, Mondaire Jones, speaking on the House floor last week. Now millions of Americans are out of work. And we must remember that it's people with disabilities, people of color and especially women of color, who have been the hardest hit. As members of Congress, we must do all we can to ensure everyone, and I do mean everyone, can live in dignity. That's why I support the National Apprenticeship Act of 2021, which will create one million new apprenticeships. This bill includes the Apprenticeships Access for All Act, which I am proud to have co-authored with my colleague, Congresswoman Alma Adams. This legislation will help remove racist and ableist barriers to employment from our national apprenticeship system because everyone deserves a good paying job, no matter your race or your ability. So that's Congressmember Mondaire Jones of New York. Alice Wong, if you could respond to this, and also if you could take us through your attempt to get a vaccine. Yeah, I'm just so delighted that, you know, the representative just talked about ableism and just named it for what it is. I think a lot of people to the public do not know what ableism is, and if they hear about it, they actually deny that it exists. You know, they just, I've been told by lots of non-disabled people, just like, you know, you have a parking spot, you have all these things, you know, you have the ADA, you know, you just have a lot of perks, and I'm just like, you know, you don't really understand at all that's, you know, ableism is systemic, and it's really bound up with hypercapitalism, and white supremacy, and I'm really delighted to see more people, especially our elected officials, calling this out, and talking about it at the same kind of breath with racism. And for me, you know, I've been really nervous, you know, this being a high-risk disabled person, I have a neuromuscular disability, and I use a ventilator to breathe, and I have respiratory failure as related with my disability. It just means that if I get the virus, I will not survive. Like, that is a certainty. So I have done everything within my power to stay safe. But again, as with so many people, there's only so much you can do. 
I have not left my house since March of last year. Hotel Dallas. I said, but one time only in October to get the flu shots. Dude, I've downloaded this. There's so many people in this country and everywhere that are living and biding their time and just trying to hang on. So, you know, when I was in case was C, I thought, okay, you know, I could just hang on. I know supply is an issue. I know the rollout has been really shaky. Yeah, not so great in California. But at least I prioritized. I'm best alive. But then, you know, the governor made this decision. Please, what see is completely wiped off of the state's websites, their state vaccination plan, and it's basically a betrayal. You know, a betrayal by the state to people in phase 1C who were told to be patients and to wait our turn. So I told around, I asked my pharmacist, they don't even have access to the vaccine yet. You know, I'm doing a lot of this kind of like, you know, conversations with people I know. I talk to my doctor. But, you know, there is really no clear idea where I might have access. And I want to also highlight that something that Elliot said in terms of long-term care workers. You know, there are people like me, people with disabilities, living in the community that have attendants that work with them, that help us with our daily needs. This is another layer of risk on top of our disabilities because it is impossible to social distance. I rely on people to help me get up every day. I have a close contact with them. There's absolutely no way to social distance. And, you know, there's a lot of people who this workforce is absolutely essential. And they, in San Francisco at least, are getting access to the vaccine. My two attendants, who are my family members, got vaccinated. But yet, I am not. And that to me is not equity, and that to me is not justice. Yeah, I'd like to ask uh, Rabbi Kukla, you've noted that although disabled people are a prioritized group in most uh, current vaccine distributions, that, uh, quote, we often end up at the back of that line, uh, even though we are three times more likely to have chronic conditions that put us at higher risk of dying of COVID-19. In you, from your perspective, how does that happen? How do disabled people end up being pushed to the back of the line? I mean, I think it's it's basically ableism. I think there's basically, since the beginning of this pandemic, it's been clear that um, disabled lives simply don't matter as much. You know, they're what, this double message, or, or maybe it's not a double message, maybe it's very a simple message that although disabled people um, have been threatened with medical rationing since the beginning, um, that although we are considered so high risk that potentially we 
can't get medical care if we do get COVID because we might not be um, savable. At the same time, we're being told that we um, need to wait for a vaccine, which really is communicating a lack of prioritizing our lives. If we're so high risk, we can't get medical care, but at the same time, we are, are being told that we are not getting a vaccine right away. That double message or singular message is one of lack of value. And that has really continued throughout the pandemic. It hasn't felt so much like hard decisions are being made in terms of weighing you know, hard decisions and sometimes disabled people end up at the bottom so much as disabled people have been easy to expend with since the beginning of the pandemic in all sorts of places, like when it has come to medical rationing, when it's come to vaccines, um, and when it's come to the sort of public health messaging that we don't have, we don't need to worry as much since you know, disabled people, elders, higher weight people will be the ones to carry the brunt of this virus. Um, I was wondering, Alice Wong, if you lived in New York, if you would have better access. Um, recently, the governor expanded the list of people who are prioritized, actually enumerating um, uh, issues that people face. For example, if you have cancer, current or in remission, including 9-11 related cancers, chronic kidney disease, pulmonary disease, including but not limited to COPD, asthma, pulmonary fibrosis, cystic fibrosis, 9-11 related pulmonary diseases, intellectual and developmental disabilities, including Down syndrome, heart conditions, including but not limited to heart failure, coronary artery disease, cardiomyopathies or hypertension, immunocompromised state, weakened immune system, including but not limited to solid organ transplant or from blood or bone marrow transplant, immune deficiencies, HIV, use of corticosteroids, and it goes on from there. It's very specific. But even as I'm reading this, I'm wondering, how do people know this? And how do people even get to vaccine sites? Like, you haven't left home, you said, but for a flu shot once since last March. So you've almost been at home for a year. Um, would you fall into a category in a different state where in California you just cannot get to the front of the line? Yeah, I think it's really... Uh the real question, right? Uh, you know, this is another question of ableism in the sense of why do people, disabled people have to prove or identify or document their disability in order to be uh, prioritized? You know, this is, I understand the need to do that and the need to try to you know, have a list, but it really leaves out a lot of people who are just as high risk as I am. And I think that's the real question is the people who are in power. And I think uh, earlier when Ellie was talking about ableism, you know, I think sometimes it's about also a question of power and a question of political representation. You know, who would, uh, abusive administration to a major decision makers are part of the disability community. You know, this is something that 
is something that really weighs on my mind because we're often seen as expendable and disposable because we're just not seen as part of their world or just somebody that is respected just by being themselves. So this is one of the things that's so difficult to the fact that each state and even each county is left to kind of have their own kind of list. And I think this kind of disparity is really unfair and just troubles me greatly because I want all of us to live. And I want to live. I want all of us to live. And I think we shouldn't have additional hurdles to just get through the door to say, well, I want to thank you so much for taking this time. Um, Alice Wong is a disability rights activist. Um, uh, she is uh, with the Disability Visibility Project, host of the podcast Disability Visibility, editor of the new book Disability Visibility, First Person Stories from the 21st Century, uh, century an anthology of essays. Um, she is speaking through a ventilator and uses an electric wheelchair. Uh, we also want to thank Rabbi Elliot Kukla, who offers spiritual care to the ill or dying at various centers, including the Bay Area um, Jewish Healing Center. Um, he is also chronically ill and a disability activist. We will link to his piece in the New York Times, Where's the Vaccine for Ableism? This is Democracy Now! When we come back, n most people heard President Biden say that there was a moratorium on deportations, on most deportations. So how is it possible that in the last few days, more than 70 people, more than 20 of them, infants and children, were deported to Haiti? Stay with us. Rise up with the moon. is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. President Biden ordered a 100-day moratorium on deportations as one of his first acts in office. But on Monday, 
U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, deported at least 72 people to Haiti. Those deported included a two-month-old baby and 21-year, uh, 21 other babies and children, which seems to contradict the order by a federal judge that blocked the moratorium but left in place instructions that only the most serious immigration cases should be subject to deportation. The Guardian reports the adults and children were deported on two flights to the Haitian capital, Port-au-Prince, as the country faces skyrocketing political violence and protests against the Haitian president's U.S.-backed regime. Um, they've been going on for months, these protests. Their push came after hundreds were deported within Biden's first days in office, mostly from Haiti.